Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back. Today we are talking to Sarah Sundin. I recorded a conversation with her a little while ago before her book released, but her newest book released February 1st. But let me first tell you a little bit about who Sarah Sundin is, in case you don't know. She enjoys writing about the adventure and romance of the World War II era. She is the best-selling author of historical novels, including Until Leaves Fall in Paris, When Twilight Breaks, and the Sunrise at Normandy series. Her books, When Twilight Breaks and The Land Beneath Us, were Christie Award finalists. A mother of three adult children, Sarah lives in California and teaches Sunday school and women's Bible studies. She serves as co-director for the West Coast Christian Writers Conference, and she enjoys speaking for church, community, and writers groups. This is Sarah's second time on the podcast. Last year, she was on talking about her book, When Twilight Breaks, which I greatly enjoyed. And this year, we are talking about her book, Until Leaves Fall in Paris, which I mentioned released February 1st. And I really enjoyed this book too. When I recorded this podcast, I had not finished reading it, but I've since finished reading it. And I just thought it was so interesting and I highly recommend it. I also just love talking to Sarah. She's um, She just has a wealth of information and so many interesting stories. I thought this was a great conversation and I know you guys are going to love it. So without further ado, Let's get to the conversation with Sarah Sundin. Sarah, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me, Allison. Yeah, I talked to you a year or so ago about uh, When Twilight Breaks, and now we're talking about your latest novel, Until Leaves Fall in Paris, which released February 1st. Can you tell me about this book? Sure. Um, It's set in Paris in World War II, and it follows two Americans who um, remained in Paris during the Nazi occupation. And one is a ballerina who buys her favorite bookstore so that the Jewish owners can escape. And she Mm -hmm. finds ways to help the resistance by passing messages between the leaves of her books. And the other American is an automaker who has a factory in Paris, and he wants to go home. He's a recent widower, and his wife, uh, he wants to take his little girl and go back to the States. But the U.S. Army convinces him to stay because he'll be selling to the Germans um, civilian trucks, and he can pass on information about what the Germans are interested to the U.S. military. So he's doing a little spy work for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh, is a little bit reluctant about that to begin with, but he is. Yeah, <laughs> <With> good reason, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, completely understandable. Um, so I mentioned to you before, I'm a little more than halfway through this, and I'm just riveted. I think that after I finish talking with you today, I may just cancel all the housework I should get done and curl up with the book to finish it. So, what was your inspiration for writing it? Well, I wanted to write a novel. I I already had two ideas for novels with Americans in Nazi Europe, one set in Germany before the war and one set in Denmark. So I wanted a third book for my the proposal I was working on. And I thought, well, what about France? And so the mm. question is, were there Americans in France during the Nazi occupation? And the answer was, yes, there were thousands. And that stunned me because wouldn't we all run away, uh, Nazis? So 
but I found that there were several thousand who remained. And then there was a year and a half between when France fell to the Germans in June 1940 to Pearl Harbor in December 1941, when the Ameri- when it, the USA was neutral and therefore Mm -hmm. Americans were free to leave. They were had their rights to do so. And several thousand of them did, but by Pearl Harbor, there were still several thousand remaining. So the question was why, why would they remain? And so I uncovered a bunch of interesting stories. And one that struck me was the story of Sylvia beach, who was a woman who ran an English language bookstore in Paris it was called Shakespeare and Company, and it's quite famous. It was the yes, yeah, it was the center for the literati in the 1920s and 1930s. All the American expats hung out there, Hemingway. Yes. And, um, it was quite the place. And she remained, and she kept her bookstore running through December 1941. And she actually remained throughout the entire war. She was interned by the Germans in um, 1942, 1943, but eventually released. She was a little bit older, so I guess they realized she wasn't a great threat. But um, hmm. I, I found that fascinating. She had a U.S. passport. She could easily have gone home, and she chose to stay. So wow. I created Lucy Gerard, who also has no interest in leaving Paris. Paris is her home. And um, to make it a little bit more um, palatable to my readers, as opposed to, well, I just don't want to go home, which my readers might think, oh, she's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> So I gave her a reason. So she has these dear friends of hers who are Jewish and this bookstore that she loves and yes. all their money is tied up in the store. So they can't leave. They can't afford the passage home. So she impulsively buys the store so that they can leave. But now she's now she's stuck because now all her money is tied up in the store. So it gave her a little bit more of a reason to leave, a reason to stay. And yes. um, I just fell in love with Greenleaf Books, this little bookstore that she runs. And uh, I mean, we're readers and writers. Who doesn't love bookstores? So it was <laughs> right. kind of a writerly dream to like, what would it be like to run a bookstore in Paris? So it was it was a fun story to write. Yeah, well, it's a fun story to read too. Although I know it, we're getting closer just because of hi- knowing history. We're getting closer to when America enters the war. Mm-hmm. As I'm reading, and I'm, I'm like, when is she going to leave? Can she leave? <laughs> I want to get out, you know. Um, also, um, now we we talked about. I mean, you know, the 1940s is when Germany first conquered France, and then you mentioned that Americans were treated well, but that completely changed on December 11th, 1941. Can you? relay the circumstances that took place on that day? Yes. Well, um, Pearl Harbor was December 7th. Yes. And kind of an interesting little side note of history was, you know, the U.S. immediately declared war on Japan. The U.S. did not declare war in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, they were already fighting at sea. Um, German U-boats had sunk a, um, six U.S. ships, including a destroyer. Several hundred mm-hmm. Americans had died at sea. Um, but... America had no interest in fighting a two-front war that we knew we'd be drawn in with Germany. But Hitler also didn't want a two-front war. He was already fighting the Soviets in the East. um, And the the British at that point were so weakened um, after Dunkirk and the Blitz that they weren't in any shape to be invading occupied Europe at any time. So really, Hitler was kind of in a sweet spot. 
And he had been advised, don't declare war on the U.S. He actually did a lot of things throughout 1941 when things were escalating to kind of de-escalate because he did not want to draw U.S. into the war. Then suddenly on December 11th, because he's Hitler and he is a megalomaniac, he suddenly declares war on the United States. Um, Churchill, I think, described it as one of you know, the best days of his life <laughs> because, of course, you know, Roosevelt immediately, you know, then the U.S. Congress immediately declares war on Germany. Um, mm-hmm. they, were, they were waiting for an excuse. So, but there they were in France, um, these Americans. So on December 11th, the German military commander required all the um, all American citizens to um, to register. And the American men of draft age were told to report for internment on December 17th. So they were rounded up on December 17th and taken to internment camps. Now, this is not like a concentration camp. It was more like a POW camp, but actually even nicer. They they treated them fairly well. Um, they had military-type food and military-type mm-hmm. housing, but they were treated well. And the Germans were doing this for a reason because in America, we were rounding up German civilians. So, of course, mm-hmm. they wanted the German civilians treated well, so they treated the American civilians well. Um, so the men were rounded up in... Um, December 17th, 1741. And then in September 1942, they broadened it. They um, rounded up some women too. The women were pretty well treated. They were taken to a spa, a hotel in Vittel, which is a spa town. They were locked up. The food wasn't great. Um, You know, not ideal circumstances, but in general, they they were treated as well as French citizens were at the time. So, um, but for Paul and Lucy, they know that being, being interned is, would be actually very dangerous for them because they have been involved in the resistance. So they need to avoid that at all costs. Mm -hmm. So without giving spoilers, how does that all tie into your story? Can you say or no? (laughs) I think it just, it creates a a ticking time bomb for them because um, first of all, they're both involved in the resistance in their own separate ways. And obviously if they get caught, uh, the, the Germans were executing people in the resistance. So Mm -hmm. the, the stakes were very high. Um, And as, as they realize with the U S rapidly going to war that they can't be interned because if the Germans then look carefully at Paul's factory and see any evidence of what he's been doing there, or if they look too closely at Lucy's bookstore and find evidence of what she's doing there, now they've got them. So they need to get out, but there are a lot of things that are holding them back. And so it's this delicate dance of um, if we wait too long, we're dead. If we leave too early, you know, there's all these other things that could go wrong. So, you know, trying to get that right timing when you don't know, I mean, we can say, well, December 7th is coming, but they don't know (laughs) any of that. So they don't know when it's going to happen. So, um, and I think that kind of created a a sense of tension um, during the story. And of course, um, then the the big question is, do they get out? And if so, how, Um, which will, would be a spoiler. <laughs> yes. <it would. laughs> yeah. Don't tell me. I, don't, I, I don't will want to tell know you. <laughs> I will tell you that whatever happens will be dramatic. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, so what type of research was, did you have to do to learn about 
the French resistance and the, mm-hmm. all the, all the different ways that the French and American expats yeah. participated. Oh yeah. That was really interesting. Um, obviously you know, Paris being a very popular focus of um, research, there's a lot of material out there, some really excellent books. And so I was able to read a lot about you know, what life was like in occupied Paris. Um, and about the resistance, about the collaborators who are the people who worked with Germany, um, about cultural life in France. And that was rather interesting. And mm-hmm. about Americans in France. And not just the Americans in France during the war, which was fascinating enough, but just re- learning about the American, what they called the American colony in France. Um, mm. And it was all these expats. And, you know, since the time of the Revolutionary War, since Benjamin Franklin, Americans have had a love affair with all things French. And it has drawn American, um, you know, pilgrims for, you know, for over well over 200 years. And, um, you know, th- for literary reasons, for business reasons, um, and other artistic reasons. So we have this long history there. And what I found interesting was that all of these institutions that have sprung up in France for Americans, there is an American church, an American cathedral, mm. American library, American hospital, uh, American chamber of commerce. I mean, all these Americans women's club. I mean, it was just a little bit of everything. It was like a little America in France. And wow. um, that was very interesting to learn about. So I was able to throw in those little bits um, about those institutions in the story. And real life history is that the American hospital was extremely involved with the resistance in World War II. Mm. So American expats were very much involved in the resistance then, because I was curious about you know, how oh, yeah. much of this is. Yeah, actually, there were quite a few. Um, and there were a few who collaborated, who were um, mm. especially businessmen who said, hey, Germans, you want to buy? Your money's as good as the French, as the English, as the Americans. So some were very, um, uh, you know, mercenary. Um, others were very interested in fascism. Right. It's it's kind of hard to explain now because we think, you know, we know, um, you know, Nazi Germans were, were evil. Um, but right. at the time, especially looking back to the history of the 1930s, where communism was such a dire threat and fascism mm-hmm. showed a path out. If we just have a fascist-type dictatorship, um, we'll keep those communists suppressed. So a lot of Americans were enamored with this concept. And mm-hmm. obviously there was anti-Semitism in America. Um, so it wasn't something that was um, foreign to the American consciousness. So there were quite a few Americans in Paris who didn't think the Germans were all that bad or enough. Some of them even thought it was and some of the French also. So it's not just an American thing, but some of the French honestly thought they were better off under the Germans than they were under the, the French government, which had been rather erratic before then. Um, granted they were a minority, the, the collaborationists, the fascists um, were a minority, mm-hmm. but um, they were there. So I, I kind of wanted to show that part of it. It was a spectrum. It wasn't, um, I think we like to focus on, you know, the good and the evil. Uh, it makes a great story. Um, yeah. So, you know, the evil Nazis and the good French resistance, but it's so much more nuanced than that. And, uh, you know, I try to bring it up that most of the resistance 
they were communists. And a lot of, um, especially those of us who are Christian, like, oh, no, the communists, they're evil. And it's like, yes. <laughs> and they were the ones who were resisting. So, right. um, and then there was this broad spectrum of people who were actively resisting. People were actively collaborating, but then there were so many people in the middle, people who just like, if I keep my head down and don't get noticed, I'll survive. And right. then people who were passively resisting and people who were passively collaborating. So it wasn't, it wasn't black and white. It was so many shades of gray and it was individuals mm. making their own decision of what was best for them, for their families, um, for their businesses, for their artistic concerns. There were so many. Um, and then of course, throwing your own personal ideology and your morals and what is the, what is the decision that you are individually going to come to? And it's not, easy to say, oh, I know I would do this, but, but what would we, would we actually, you know, be on the side of what we now label as good? Or would we be the ones like, I have small children at home. I just need to not get noticed. So I don't get killed. So my children will survive. Mm -hmm. So it's not an easy thing to, to say. No. And that actually brings up the other point that um, Paul who is a widower has a small child. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of complicates his plot quite a bit. Yes. But I, I wanted to bring that up because I love um, how you have this little girl and she's making up stories about mm -hmm. an imaginary character, but the stories are mirroring what's going on in the world. And I just um, like you have the rock monsters, which mm -hmm. represents the, the Germans um, who are coming and kind of stomping all over their life. Um, I just thought that was so brilliant and just kind of this other little thread through the story. I, I just love it. I think it's, oh, it's thank great. you. And I honestly um, don't know where Feeny and the rock monsters came from. Uh, <laughs> it was just like, I knew she was a little storyteller and she had a little imaginary friend and these little stories just kind of flew together and I just remember kind of the, the, the little nonsense stories my own kids told around that age and, and, yeah. and how kids are so subconscious and they won't, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I remember watching my children play and they would, they're the things that they'd be doing, we'd almost be mirroring what we were doing, but they were trying to translate into their own little, in their own limited understanding. Cause if you're only four years old, you only have four years of experience. You don't have vocabulary. And so you're trying to translate it into words that you know. You just know that something's wrong and you need to, to explain it. And uh, so, yeah, that was a, a fun little – I love Josie, and I love Josie's relationship with Lucy. And yes. um, the fun thing was I, I think I knew fairly early on that Josie was a storyteller, but – their relationship really grew as I was rough drafting, which is unusual for me. I'm a plotter. I outline, I have spreadsheets, mm. but when I started, when I was writing, I think it was chapter two and Lucy's with her ballerina friends in the office of the bookstore. And there's all this paperwork on the desk and Lucy hates paperwork and numbers and organization and all that stuff. And she waves her hands over it and says, I'm going to turn it all into paper mache. And I said, that's <laughs> kind of fun. And I'm like, oh, what could she do with paper mache? Oh, she can make puppets and she could use puppets for, um, and that's a very French tradition. And she can make puppets and yeah. use them in the puppet show. And suddenly like, what if she brings Josie's stories to life? And, and I just love that. And I, I had more fun. I think I had as much fun writing Josie's little stories as I did writing the novel itself. 
<laughs> That's great. And it, it does, it adds so much to it. Um, it really does. And and you're right. I mean, I, I've seen my own kids like work things out mm-hmm. in writing stories or making up, you know, play. Yeah. Like play, play, acting even, out stories. Exactly. You're just even little girls playing with their dolls and you'll hear them like, Oh, wow. <laughs> Is that what I sound like as a mother? Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so interesting. So, and then there was another theme that I I see developing. Um, Lucy sees herself as unintelligent mm-hmm. because she, um, you know, didn't doesn't have beyond, a, I think, a seventh grade education because she went to ba- ballet school. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Paul is kind of dispelling that idea that she's not smart. Why did you include that theme? How did that develop? Yeah, that was kind of grew out. I just, first I'd had this, I'd, I wanted her to feel like she was in over her head um, and that, that she didn't feel very well read, um, especially in comparison to Bernadette, who is the store assistant and this intimidation that goes on between them. And, um, and then realizing she hates numbers. Um, so she's going to be the little girl in school and she's always daydreaming, looking out the window. So the teachers would be quick to say, Oh, she isn't very smart. She isn't very bright. Mm-hmm. And of course, what do children do? They believe what people adults tell them. So she's always told herself, I'm not very bright. I'm not very smart. I'm no good with numbers. And um, of course, but she is well read. She's the, um, the owners of Greenleaf books even though she was in ballet school, gave her a list of books to read. So she's read a lot and um, she knows more than she thinks and she's brighter than she thinks. And Paul sees that mm-hmm. in her. And especially as he grows to appreciate creativity and he is a very left-brained um, engineer, businessman sort. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so um, she, as he comes to appreciate creativity, he sees that you know, her intelligence is just different. It's not, the same as his, and that's good, and that's fine. And um, I really liked how their relationship grew in that way and how they helped each other, uh, how she helped him grow to appreciate creativity and how he helped her grow to see that, you know, numbers aren't evil and, right. <laughs> and business isn't evil and science isn't evil. And um, mm-hmm. so he, he, they really helped each other grow. Yeah, yeah, I love that too. Um, so you mentioned earlier why I think you briefly kind of mentioned why you chose to set the novel in France. I know you said, um, no, when Twilight Breaks was about Paul's, uh, friend from Harvard, mm-hmm. or yes. one of his friends. Um, and then there was another friend. Is that book written yet about the other? It is finished. Right. It is due. Okay, that's- um, oh, I'm sorry. This will be airing afterward. <laughs> it has been turned in. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> We're recording this the day before my due date and it will be, it will be turned on the due date because I'm just polishing it up. But yes, it is set in Denmark and it follows Peter and Paul's friend from Harvard, um, Baron Henrik, who is um, a Dane and he's in Denmark in World War II. And um, his counterpart is a, an American physicist who's studying with um, Nobel laureate Niels Bohr in Copenhagen. Mm. So, um, wow. Yeah, it's a fun story. I'm, I'm just, of course, I'm in the point where I, um, the book that you're writing is always the one that you're super thrilled about. And I'm super thrilled about this yeah. story. Yeah, that's exciting. But, and you can 
tell us more about that if you want to. If sure, there's yeah. anything else to, yeah. This, so Henrik is a, a baron living in Denmark and he's, when the Nazis invade Denmark, he is disgusted with his old lifestyle. Um, and he's basically what we call now party boy. Um, he's you know, living for himself and he decides to give up his nobility to go underground um, so that he can help Denmark. And he becomes what he calls the Halmon, which means um, di- merman, um, based on mm. the, the little mermaid, who is a, a Copenhagen um, fixture. And yeah. he is a Danish, um, he was on the Danish rowing team. So he is an, a massive rower. So he rows, it's 10 miles across from Denmark to Sweden, which was neutral and free. Mm. So he rows messages across from Denmark to Sweden for the resistance. But to do this, he has to appear not as he is. He can't be an aristocrat. So he lives as a shipyard worker. He pretends to be not terribly bright. He uses a very limited vocabulary. He has an alias and he lives in the sporting house where he meets this nuclear physicist. <laughs> and uh, and this, this odd friendship develops between this, this, um, this so-called shipyard worker he who has about eight words in his vocabulary and this highly <laughs> educated young lady and they, but they really grow to appreciate each other and then he has a decision to make does he reveal his identity to her or not and mm. um meanwhile she finds ways to help the resistance by printing illegal papers on the mimeograph machine at the the institute so mm. and i incorporate a bunch of really interesting history about denmark in World War II, um, great story. Um, the D- Danish story in World War II is just um, thrilling and inspiring. And so I've always wanted to write it and finally got a chance to. Wow. Wow. So I don't know much about Denmark during World yeah. War II, but you knew about this before. Yeah, a little you bit. Knew- you know, as I was doing research on other things, it kept popping up. Mm. And um, yeah, I'll do a quick nutshell. But at the beginning, um, Hitler decided to treat Denmark as a protectorate and he called it his model protectorate. So they had very good living conditions. They had better food than anywhere in occupied Europe. They had freedoms. The the Jews were treated fine because there was no history of anti-Semitism in Denmark. So they, their government was still in place their Mm. army and Navy were still in place. So very odd situation and but the Danes began resisting, and of course, as they began resisting, the Germans began cracking down. And it took mm-hmm. longer in Denmark than in other countries because the conditions were so good. And your yeah. your average Dane, like you know, I've got a full belly, I've got a job, I'm free. Why do I want to mess with that? So finally, um, it started to build up in 1943, which is when the bulk of this novel takes place, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it really came to a head in August, September, October, and the, the Germans decided to round up all the, the Danish Jews in a single night on Rosh Hashanah, which is cold-blooded and callous mm-hmm. because they knew they'd all be at home. And um, the Danes rose up almost unanimously, had all the Jews in hide, almost all the Jews in hiding, and then over the next month transported them across to Sweden in rowing boats and fishing boats and yachts. And there were 7,000 Jews in Denmark before this happened. And the Germans only found 472, I believe is the right number off the top of my head. 
Now that was 472 that should not have been arrested, but out of 7,000. And because the Danes were adamant, they hounded the Germans about their countrymen. And because of that, they were kept in Theresienstadt, which was a much nicer (laughs) concentration camp. Um, I think there was only one who was deported Auschwitz. None of them were murdered. Uh, Some Mm. died um, in captivity. I think about 50 died in captivity, but apparently most of them were elderly. So it's, you know, it's hard to tell how many would have died um, of natural causes during that time period. But because the Dane and they figured out a way to get care packages to them with food and vitamins. And um, the Germans were kind of, stymied like we we can't make the danes unhappy because they're sending us herring and milk and cheese so they had to keep the danes happy and to do that they had to treat their jews well so really interesting story and it just causes you to wonder if more countries had been like that um what would have what would have happened with the holocaust um, and we'll never right. know. Um, there were special conditions in Denmark, and namely the lack of anti-Semitism to begin with, which was really unusual. Um, the close, dis- mm-hmm. you know, 10 miles to a neutral country, which was welcoming to the Jews. And um, so there were a lot of special features that you couldn't replicate in other countries. So it isn't a fair, a completely fair comparison to other countries. But um, it's it still makes you stop and wonder because the, the Germans really took their... Um, a lot of their attitude from the native populations too. So when the native populations said, we don't care about those foreign Jews, we can't arrest our Jews, which is what the French said. That's what they did. They Mm -hmm. rounded up the foreign Jews in France, but they didn't round up the French Jews until later. Um, So there are all these situations that happened. They kind of took their cues from the native populations. So, hmm. yeah, really, really interesting. And that so, is fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So um, I feel like that leads right into the question that I ask all my guests. And I mm-hmm. asked it of you last time you were on, but um, I don't recall exactly what you said. So maybe you'll have a <laughs> slightly different answer this time with your more knowledge and research under your belt. But um, how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Oh, I think it's just so, so important. Um, first of all, and this is very interesting. I wrote Until Leaves Fall in Paris during the first year of, of the pandemic. My county yes. was in complete lockdown for almost two months. I'm, I'm in Northern California, so we had very, very strict mm. restrictions. And we're still required yeah. to wear masks indoors. And so the sense of isolation, of social distancing, of fearing your neighbor, of like, mm. is she? Inf- you know, you're passing people in the grocery store, and you're all kind of eyeing each other. Is she infected? Is um, uh, am I going to get sick because she walked too close to me? So the sense mm. of distrust and social distancing. And as I'm writing it, I'm realizing it was very much like life in an occupied country. You wow. keep you don't know who to trust. If you're in the resistance, you don't talk about it to anybody. You use code names. You're, you're the person that you work. You only know the people that you directly involved with. And um, as you're passing people on the street, you don't know that person could turn you, turn you into the Gestapo or they might be on your side. Mm-hmm. You don't know. And, um, and there were informers and there were Gestapo who of course were wearing plain clothes and you might not be able to tell them at a, at a, at a glance who they were. So that sense um, it really came to light, but I think what, re- 
was important for me as I was writing this book and I'm living through this, um, gaining an appreciation because I think so many of us had this, of this attitude of, Oh my goodness, what are we going through? Life has never been like this before. Um, this is horrific. And knowing that people had gone through similar things. And then of course you look back to the flu epidemic in 1918, um, they'd actually gone through very similar things in the past, but knowing history helps you. It gives you a sense of peace too, because you go, Oh, times have been horrible in the past, but people Mm -hmm. may do people grew stronger. People found ways to help others. Um, can I do the likewise? And, um, Right. So I think that really being immersed in that time period while I was living through my own moment in history helped me to have perspective and um, some peace about the situation and um, some strength to get through it too. So I think it's so vital because um, life has been difficult in the past. Life will be d- difficult in the future. And if we can learn how we as human beings can get through these difficult times, um, it's, it's so helpful. Yes. Yeah. That's very true. So Sarah, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Oh, I'm, I'm all over the internet. So um, my website is sarahsundin.com, S-A-R-A-H-S-U-N-D-I-N. It's been newly redesigned and so pretty. Um, so come mm-hmm. have a look and you can sign up for my my email newsletter there. And I have a little World War II booklet about life on the U.S. on front there that you get if you sign up. Plus I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram all under Sarah Sundin. So please find me and say hi. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sarah Sundin. I almost said with Sylvia Beach because I was looking up Sylvia Beach quotes to share with you. Um, But obviously I was not speaking with Sylvia Beach. It was the great author S. Sarah Sundin. And as you know, if you listen to this podcast much, either before or after the interview, I always ask you to please, if you're enjoying this podcast, subscribe to it or follow it, whatever your podcast app likes to call it, so that you can receive it every week when it's when it releases. And also rate it and review it because that will help other readers of historical fiction find it. And I know that lovers of historical fiction will love this podcast. So we of course want them to find it. So subscribe, rate, review. And also if you're interested in going to the links of Sarah's books, finding her website, all those things, um, you can find those in the show notes, either in your app or at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. That's where those um, show notes live and what you can expect to find in the show notes other than links to Sarah Sundin's information and, and website and books and all of that good stuff. You can also find links to my Facebook group, which I would love for you to join, and my Instagram page, which I would love for you to follow, and my Patreon page, which I would love for you to consider joining and supporting me in this endeavor, my um, podcast and the other the, the other projects that I'm working on. Just head over to that link. It, it also can be found at um, 
patreon.com slash Allison Treat. And um, you all always have to use the one L for Allison when you go there. If you misspell my name when you try to find my website, it'll still find it, but not with Patreon. So there may be some perks that you would enjoy. And one of them is that I share a monthly video with book reviews. So if you hear about a book on this podcast, you may think that you'll like it, but you might want to check out the video first and make sure. So that is a special perk that's only for a certain level of of patron on Patreon. So check that out and see if you might be interested. And of course, I would like to leave you today with a quote from Sylvia Beach. Now, there were several good quotes from Sylvia Beach, and I I struggled with which one to include, but I decided to go with a little bit more obscure one. Sylvia Beach was talking about James Joyce, and she said, he said to me that history was like that parlor game where someone whispers something to the person next to him who repeats it not very distinctly to the next person, and so on until by the time the last person hears it, it comes out completely transformed. Now, I hope that our authors that we have on this show are a little more careful with the history they put into their novels. And it's so good to know the best version of history that we can. So my friends, keep reading historical fiction, and I will talk to you again next week.